Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Modern Earth. I'm your host, Liam Roy, and I'm so stoked to have you back dialed in for another episode today. Before we get started, I wanted to give a shout out to my patrons on Patreon. You can join my Patreon for as little as $2 a month. There you can submit questions to upcoming guest speakers, get early access to new episodes, find bonus content, like extended episodes, and much more. This episode actually has an extended version on my Patreon right now. So if you're digging the vibe and you're down to support, drop me a toonie and lock into the full extended episode on my Patreon at patreon.com slash modern earth. Link in the description. If you're looking for a way to support the show, which costs you $0, you can hit that subscribe button, share the podcast with a friend, and drop the show a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, thank you so much for those who leave reviews. I read each and every one, like the one this week from Cordy3, who says that they love the show and couldn't wait for the next episode. This project truly takes so much time, but I absolutely love doing it. So it makes me feel great knowing that other people are enjoying the show too. If you really like the show, consider leaving me a review and I'll be so stoked to read it. Probably do a happy dance wherever I am in that moment. Now for today's episode. Today, I've got a 30-year-old French Canadian on the line who's been working in the Canadian tourism industry for over 10 years. Along with his background in tourism management and sustainability, he's toured from coast to coast, sea to sky, all across Canada. After recently managing the adventure guiding department of a five-star luxury wilderness resort, it was perfect timing to get him on the show. On today's episode, we'll hear his perspective on how the Canadian tourism industry is evolving with the help of technology and what he envisions for the near and distant future. Get ready to hear all about what it takes to be an adventure guide, satellite GPS devices, enhancing wilderness excursions with the help of technology, how not to get eight when you go into the forest, flying over Canada in virtual reality, how to solve the tourism saturation problem, light up forest walks, the best way to find hikes in your area, and where the future of the Canadian tourism industry might be headed with today's guest, Phil Maltese. Have you ever been on a podcast before? Dude, never. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Oh, this is going to yeah. be a fun first time. So wait, where are you right now? Because you just moved, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we're right on the kind of city lines of Penticton slash Naramata. So like an hour south-ish of Kelowna. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. You're in wine country for sure then. Big time. <laughs> we're kind of out like right in the middle of the vineyard. So from yeah. the main town our house we counted 28 vineyards the other day in a eight minute drive that's so much wine to drink <laughs> and like you have to try them all well you know that's I mean? exactly it. So <laughs> within 10 kilometers in each direction we probably have 30 vineyards each, oh no so way oh sweet so you don't even total. have to drive there you can just no like, <laughs> no and we have, we have like one of the main trails the kettle valley railway which is a huge trail that they converted an old railway into like a nice hiking gravel trail and that nice. basically goes by every single vineyard. So you can just cruise that and just pop into them as you're walking. It's yeah, it's sweet. How do you go to a wine tasting without having a drink or, or to a club or to the zoo? Maybe like we could do a bit of an introduction. If you want to tell everyone your full name, tell them a bit about yourself. Yeah, you bet. So I'm Phil Malte. I'm currently recording from Penticton, British Columbia. Um, I grew up just north of Toronto, moved there after being born in Africa, which probably 
put me on the whole tourism path years and years and years ago before I even knew it. Pretty much right after high school in Ontario, I bumped out to Montreal, back to where my family's from. Samusa? But it's serious, toi. Hedgehog. Hedgehog? Hedgehog. Ah, oh, it's easy, ça. Hedgehog. Hedgehog. On dirait que je parle en allemand. Spent a couple years out there just starting with your basic business management program and I was taking my summers to be guiding. So I started off as a whitewater guide back in Ontario. And then as I was transitioning from summer back into school, I just realized there's no way I could do data entry business work for my whole life. Yeah. So, so with that, I uh, thankfully had some super encouraging parents that knew my passions, knew what I was going for. And they pushed me more towards the West where there were some pretty incredible schools. So I landed in Kamloops, did my tourism management degree out there where I majored in entrepreneurship and minored in sustainable tourism. And then from there, just been kind of bouncing around to different guiding jobs. Obviously, as you know, we just met in the um, Fino area, Clackwatt Wilderness Lodge. And that's where I've spent the past six years really growing my passion and love for the whole tourism industry. Just made a big switch from that. And we left after a big decision and kind of called it our last season this year. So now we're out in the real world, out of the bush and yeah. into the and uh, yeah, kind of starting to make our own way out here. And yeah, we got some big plans for the next couple of years and we're super stoked to be out and kind of giving back to the tourism industry in a different way, in a little different region as well. Yeah. I mean, the first question I kind of have to ask you, like, I didn't even know you were born in Africa. Were you just a, a bean the whole time and then you moved when you were really small or what? My dad had gotten transferred. He was the head of internal auditing for a international shoe company. Weird okay. and funny. Enough. <laughs> this shoe this is pretty cool. But yeah, he got transferred to Africa. So they spent four years out there. So my brother spent four years of his life out there. And then I was born a year and a half, two years in. I think I was just under two years old when we finally moved back to Canada, moved back to Montreal. So. Do you have any memories still from when you were there or were you pretty little? I have absolutely none. Thankfully, yeah, like... I'm still working with the company when I hit my teen years. So when I was 15, I got to go back to where I was oh, born perfect. and see the people that took care of me while parents were working, see the basically the area we lived in, the house I lived in. Yeah, it was a really cool experience getting to go back and same thing that just kept on sparking my interest for the tourism industry. And I mean, the world has so much to give and what better way to see that and do that than through tourism. Yeah. The more that I travel, the more that I realize like we as people from North America have one way that we kind of all live. And then if you suddenly go outside of that bubble, there's so much more world out there and so many different cultures that people are like living different ways and you don't even touch the tip of the iceberg until you've lived in those places for longer than the three days totally i remember landing in africa and that being like the biggest shell shock i've ever been because it was just never really done anything where i got out there and it was like holy shit this is yeah. a world and people like we're not the center of the universe <laughs> no that's the thing so many other ways so many other traditions things people do that are just so incredible and amazing out there and we just get so focused and centered on what we do over here as being the the mecca in the right way but it's yeah it's really cool traveling and that's you get eye openers for all these people experiences foods everything so yeah. yeah maybe traveling at a younger age is what really helped draw you to the tourism industry as well it definitely instilled a <laughs> bit of that bug where i had to bounce around and find new places new things to do but i think the biggest 
thing that my early ages travels gave to me was the genuine intrigue on different people, how they react to different scenarios, how they're comfortable in some things, how they're uncomfortable in some things, and how certain experiences like food or going into the safari and seeing these incredible animals can bring together different cultures, different people. You share this one common experience and it just brings everybody together, which is incredible. So I think it more so sparked my interest in people and how you can bring them together and bring them into new scenarios and make them comfortable or bring them completely out of their comfort zones and mind blow them with these crazy cool experiences. Yeah. The humans are an amazing species to look at, read and kind of work their minds because it's just, yeah, it's really cool how people react differently in different scenarios. Totally. That kind of leads me into the question of what does it really mean to be the adventure guide? I think personality and what it takes to be a guide, you're at the front of that service the entire time. So you've got to be somebody that can hold a conversation even with the most quiet, even with the most experienced, unexperienced, knowledgeable, completely unknowledgeable people. Keep it interesting for anywhere from eight to 10 hours a day. The other big one I would have to say in terms of adventure guides is your kind of risk assessment and your knowledge of what you're going into, having your plans, having your redundancies on if something's going to go wrong um, and just kind of having a bit of foresight into that. But other than that, it's it's, it's a more accessible industry to get into. Um, obviously, you get your certifications, all your requirements, your first aids and all that, which are courses that pretty much anyone can take. So assessing the situation, mm-hmm. are they breathing? No, Rose. They are not breathing and they have no arms or legs. No, that's not part of it. Where are they? But you've got to have that passion for people and have the ability to make sure that you're giving them exactly what they're looking for, for a big extended amount of time. Yeah, absolutely. And also like what you were saying, safety and wilderness skills and the risk assessment. We have a coworker or I guess former coworker and his name is Johnny. And the first time that he went up one of the excursions that they go to the top of a mountain with a helicopter, he got stuck up there because there was so many clouds on his first day. He was having a blast the whole time. And everyone else who went up with him was having a great time the whole time, too. You don't know what's going to happen, right? That's a big thing, too, is you have to always be monitoring those risks in the back of your head. Because there's definitely times where you have run-ins where some element that you don't have control over has popped up that you have to deal with. And you've got to keep that calm demeanor. Whatever you project is exactly what they're going to feel and whatever Absolutely. they're going to take. So you project fear, they're going to have that fear. You just project your calmness and your overall just excitement for whatever you're doing. That's going to go right back to them and they're going to remember that forever. Totally. So, I mean, like, just while I'm on the topic, have you ever run into a bear mid-hike? I've had a couple couple <laughs> experiences in the recent past, mainly just living out on Vancouver Island, and it's a wild area. So, sometimes you turn the corner of a building, six feet around you, you've got a black bear just sitting there staring. Thankfully, we've got those nice timid black bears that are generally a little more afraid. Um, but I've been out in Chilliwack area doing some fishing after the season, cruise along the riverbank, kind of hike into another spot on the river that I was looking for. And little baby cub bear shows up in front of me. And oh, that no. usually is an ocean. <laughs> so I see the little cub and right away that's air horn out, spray out. And I was just okay. like, all right, where's mama? She's yeah, got to be suffering. Totally. And then turn around and hear the huffing and see her kind of huffing and stomping. Thankfully, that one turned out to be a little anticlimactic where yeah. I was just to slowly back away and give them their space and they went off. Then uh, Megan, my partner and our dog Maui, we were out, same thing at the lodge, super, super early season. And we 
went to go to one of our gold mines and we realized hindsight that we were ignoring some signs. So we got to our turnaround point. So yeah. we turned around, started hiking back. And for the first time, pretty much ever, I saw Maui drop to the back of the group. And that was kind of a weird thing. So a little couple of meters later, I look back and, oh, nice. We have a nice little German shepherd that joined us on our hike. A couple <laughs> steps after, oh, wait, we have no German shepherds on property. That is a... I can smell werewolves. We were just about to walk past a werewolf, so some shit might go down. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> no. We got, we got followed for um, 500 meters on the trail until we got down to the river. Thankfully, again, Maui super well trained. We got to the front, and this whole time the wolf was very clearly after the dog and had no interest in us. But oh, really? Yeah, we Interesting. Got to the river. Megan and Maui jumped in the river right away. We're radioing because early season, if we swim across and don't have a car there, we're getting hypothermic for sure. So as soon as we got the go ahead that somebody was on their way up, we swam across the river because throwing rocks, air horn, nothing was really deterring this wolf. And even on the other side, as we cruised down the river a little bit, it kind of stuck on the shoreline, followed us down as much as it could, and then took its considerations into fact and realized it wasn't going to swim away. So yeah, kind of finally just turned around and went off on its own way. But yeah, those were probably the two adrenaline pumped uh, yeah. <laughs> encounters. So like quick safety rundown for listeners who are wanting to go on a hike into the forest. What should I do so that I don't get eight? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'd say big ones for me are planning awareness, and then execution while you're out there. So I don't think we can talk enough about planning. Know where you're going. Get intel from anybody you can. You've got beta from somebody that's gone there before. If you know you're going at a certain time of the year, check out what's going on at that time of the year. See, are you in salmon season where all the bears are flooding back to the rivers? Are you in the middle of the summer where everything's safe and you're not going to run into everything? Have your plan. Let somebody know, obviously, that I can't stress enough. Get people into your loop of what you're doing, especially if you're going out alone. But even if you're going out with people, let other people know just in case something's happening. Just being prepped. Make sure you have extra food. Boy, these pretzels are making me thirsty. Make sure you have all your extra gear. Um, I personally, when I'm going out, especially alone, I carry around my Garmin inReach. If all else fails, I'm out of service, out of anything, I can find my way with that. The SOS button's on it where if something happens where I can't get myself out, I can hit an SOS, sends an exact location and your emergency services are going to be there. So pretty much imagine that cell phone you had 10 years ago, but on steroids. It can only send text messages, but it can send them from anywhere in the world. That being said, there's no camera, no fruit ninja, and it only comes in the color red. So no rose gold option seems like a bit of an oversight. (laughs) Honestly, though, this thing looks pretty rad. Garmin also has tons of other products like navigation systems and GPS watches. If you want to check them out, I've linked their website in the show notes. Have sunscreen, have food, have water, yeah. know where you're going, and then just be aware. A lot of people, and especially for us, we've got a lot of Europeans coming out to our lodges that don't experience the big game animals like we do out here. And a lot of them have this just inherent fear of them that these are these crazy man-eating animals going to destroy you as soon as you see them. And that's not the case. We've seen time and time again, whether it be bears, wolves, sharks, any of these big predators, for the most part, they're not out to get us. They are more terrified of us than we are of them. But there are tendencies that humans will do that'll aggravate these animals that'll 
put them in that situation where they have to react and they have to yeah. defend themselves. It's They're really not- situational. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, if you're going out in a region or a new region, look at all the possibilities, know that there is a not even a 1% chance that, that happens to you, but just have that in the back of your mind in case something were to happen, always be ready. Yeah. And maybe also don't keep your bear spray in the very bottom of your bag. No, no. And that also opens up <laughs> you got that at the bottom of the bag. I've seen people's sprays gone off in the bottom of the bag. They go to <laughs> It and then they're pepper spraying themselves. So. <laughs> no. so maybe I can kind of switch over the question here. I wanted to talk to you about things that are available for people to do within the Canadian tourism industry. I think that's one of the beautiful things about this country that we live in is you have virtually everything right in this one country. You take Vancouver as a prime example. You can be in the heart of one of the biggest cities in Canada and then in a completely remote mountain within an hour. Incredible dichotomy between the developed city tourism. People are starting to push further and further and further away from those cities into these green spaces where they can access a whole new type of tourism and a whole new type of experience. The opportunities are endless from incredible shows and events that get put on in these huge cities to festivals that go through city streets to these pure rugged wilderness experiences that can be offered to any kind of experience level even. We can bring you in from absolute greenies that have never stepped foot outside a gravel paved trail. Those are nature's best mushrooms. Wild. And I have to say, these little buggers are damn tasty as well. You can bring them deep into the wilderness and show these incredible experiences that just get them hooked and dead set on making sure that's a part of their life, which is absolutely. I personally, as I've developed in this industry, at the start, it was a lot of intrinsic values that I had for that. And it was all kind of orientated towards this is my lifestyle. This is what I want to do. And then it's kind of developed more into this. I get this really special opportunity to bring people that just aren't comfortable going out there on their own. They're not comfortable because of stories they've heard, because of what media is projected as something. So we've got this incredible chance to show these people, give them the building blocks of what they need to go out and do this on their own. And one of my favorite things is when people are leaving our experiences, it's okay, what gear, what knowledge, what do I need to be able to do this on my own? And then you can sit down with them, you go through everything and you know, somebody's leaving with a completely changed outlook on the outdoors and how they can utilize that in their lives to kind of balance themselves out. Yeah. So you said also you've been pretty much coast to coast in Canada. I'm curious what your favorite places are in Canada. I'd say first off the coasts. I absolutely love both coasts. Um, The East Coast and West Coast, they both have that kind of laid back, kind of slower lifestyle vibe. Obviously, as you've seen on the West Coast, it's more adventure, outdoor. And then the East Coast is just a very slow, relaxed energy that they have out there. I've got some incredible places in Quebec. My dad's side of the family, they were from six hours north of Montreal in the Saguenay region. So it's this gorgeous, untouched wilderness around them and just absolutely stunning, stunning vistas and views everywhere around kind of another mecca where a lot of people think oh west coast is the mecca for adventure and that but there's these amazing pockets in quebec toronto i grew up just north of it so algonquin park um one of the must hits if you're ever looking for a canoe trip or multi-day camping trip you've got to go into ontario and do some trips out there and then the prairies Growing up in a big city, we obviously, the prairies were the butt end of the joke for most of the (laughs) (laughs) But then I ended up with a partner from uh, Regina, Saskatchewan, and that 
completely changed my outlook. The prairies are absolutely incredible from the fields to the rivers and lakes around there. They're absolutely stunning to go check out. As always, though, my heart lies in the mountains. So hitting yeah. the rock and all the other uh, mountain ranges from the Rockies west towards the coast of Vancouver area, those mountain ranges are absolutely stunning. And you see them summer, winter, fall, spring. They always have something new to give you, some different weather, some different views, wildlife. But then I know for a fact, as soon as I push north towards Yukon and the territories that it's going to be game over and I'm going to love those just as yeah. much. So it's, I want to take a hot bath. I'm getting cold just thinking about all this ice. It's really tough because like we said earlier, Canada has such a wide variety of different regions, different areas that it's, it's hard to pinpoint one as a favorite, but then, and it's a little bit of a bias, that valley we just came from, the Bedwell Valley just outside of Tofino. That's in my eyes. It's one of the most spectacular places in the world. And that's that one's going to be hard to touch. Absolutely. So, okay, I got another question. It's not a big question, but it's a really hard one. And um, one of your adventure guides has a podcast and she asked this on hers and it's just savage. So like you could only see the ocean or the mountains again, and you could never see the other one ever again. Which one would you choose? yeah it's like so mean or i'm a water baby as well yeah so my first instinct was right away ocean but i think in terms of myself my lifestyle and what i like to do i'd have to pick mountains still have lakes you still have the snow totally. you have the trees you have the rolling hills you just have a wider variety on what you're going to get and then for me being close to the ocean the entire time you don't get as defined of a four seasons as yeah. i would like and that's kind of why we just moved away from the coast. That's what Canada is incredible for is having that distinct four season. Like right now I'm looking out the window and I'm seeing leaves of every single color as it's coming down. And then further on, you see snow in the top of the mountains and you've got the lake there that people are boating on. Like it's so cool. You can't go wrong with that. <laughs> yeah. You were kind of mentioning earlier. I also really like the prairies. For me, it's the skies and the sunsets. You can just see forever. So it's unreal and they're all colorful. But my heart also belongs in the mountains. And I think one of the main reasons is those four seasons. You don't really necessarily get that definition of the four seasons when you're right at the coast. But in the mountains, it's real summer. In the fall, everything is orange, red real fluffy snow winter it's kind of a winter sport you know you mean winters in igloos and eskimos and penguins and ice possibly see you beautiful bloom in the spring when everything yeah. starts to pop green again yeah absolutely it's, it's nuts what would you take mountains or ocean then i think mountains as well and um because i just spent about half a year living in tofino and then prior to that i spent about a year living in nelson and I, when I was living in Nelson, I was like, oh man, I need to see what it's like living at the coast. And now I've done yeah, both. I need to be surfing. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's the problem is I don't snowboard as much. I surf. So I was like, okay, I should be by the ocean. But I truly love being in the mountains for every other reason yeah. more. Yeah. Honestly, I can't even begin to say how much I love BC's mountain range. And I love the Kootenays. If you like anything like camping, hiking, fishing, kayaking, natural hot springs, skiing, snowboarding, mountain biking, art festivals, music festivals, wineries, like the list literally goes on and on and on. If you go out there, I highly recommend you check out Nelson, BC. That's my favorite place in all of Canada. And it's, it's something you need to truly experience for yourself. But all I can say is that it's gorgeous and the community is even more beautiful. I guess I can just make a flight out to the coast when I want to go surfing. Exactly. But, and that's kind of yeah. like why we picked the area we're in now is it's yeah. such an incredibly 
central location. So if I want to be on the coast, four hours, I'm there. Yeah, it's not that bad. The Rockies, four hours, I'm there. So it's, yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Sweet. Yeah. If I want to go get some wine, four minutes. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm there. 14 steps away and I've got it. Um, so speaking of wine, maybe we can get into the meat and the cheese charcuterie board of, uh, this, <laughs> of this podcast. Um, I wanted to know how has technology affected the evolution of the Canadian tourism industry over the past few decades? For me, the two major things that it's stemmed into is the ability to handle the massive influx of tourists coming in, as well as creating that desire through obviously your social medias, your marketing, everything that's just so much easier than grabbing your Lonely Planet traveling book and having to buy 33 different ones to pick on where you want to travel. Everything's at our fingertips. We can see these incredible locations worldwide without even going to them. And then accessibility. It's making tourism so incredibly accessible for people that at one point couldn't go there or people that are mobility issued. It's giving them these new and amazing experiences. Like one of the main ones I think of, at least for Canada is our flyover Canada program that's started in a couple of the cities. I think it's got Vancouver and Toronto right now that it's running in. Okay. And it's amazing technology. That's basically using um, virtual reality as well as obviously drones, planes to record everything. And it's giving you this, wicked fly through of the entire country and it's putting you in the front driver's seat of where you're going and what you're looking at and it's bringing accessibility to everyone and then it's just refining it right so you've got these amazing reservation systems now that you don't need 40 different workers taking phone calls and dealing with that you've got this system that can do it you've got easy marketing you've changed the tourism industry which it's a double-edged sword though so obviously you've got that issue where you're pulling in too many people sometimes or you completely relied on a system and it goes down and you can't basically operate without it. Um, So it's the double edge where it's bringing in this amazing influx to all these incredible places, but then some places don't have the infrastructure to deal with it. So they're kind of getting overwhelmed and swamped. And then you're not getting that perfect experience that you were thinking of, but then it's just bringing awareness to these tourism companies to broaden their range or their spectrum of who they're pulling in as clients and make it so everybody can enjoy that. Absolutely. And like a prime example would be if you looked at Tofino 20 years ago, it was a pretty tiny end of the road and you would just go surfing there and you look at it today and it's popping now. There's, (laughs) there's, there's quite a few people in it now. Right. And so, yeah, exactly. And that's, that's the perfect example. Cause you, you look at it I mean, the road, the paved road to Tofino didn't go in until the sixties, seventies and we're less than 50 years later. And it's, and we saw it this summer in Tofino, especially they had to set up roadblocks and turn people away because there was just too many tourists coming into town. There were yeah. no accommodations. There were no places to sit down for dinner, every single business. And obviously COVID had a bit of a say in that with reduced numbers of uh, workers, but we had to turn away guests because there were just too many oh, people wow. that saw that surfing trip, saw that beautiful Sandy beach, which isn't indicative of Canada's coast at all. We're used to the rugged beach and people see, oh my God, Tofino's loaded with gorgeous white sand beaches. I've got to go. And yeah. it's just some communities and Tofino's limited because of its park presence around it that they can't expand to really deal with that need of just more infrastructure. So they're kind of at this weird stage right now where they're trying to accommodate all the tourists, but also trying to keep it. So it's a nice special experience for everybody. And you're not 
going to a beach and you've got one square meter that you can sit on one or two towels with your family and then you basically surrounded by tourists you yeah you've got that balance of still making it accessible but keeping it exclusive enough that you're not ruining that experience in canada in general we have so much space if you look at how many people live per square kilometer on average in comparison to other countries like okay so on average canada has a population density of four people per square kilometer do you want to know how many people germany has take a guess 30 50 yeah no try 230 craziest thing that's not even the most Bangladesh is leading the leaderboard with first place at 1,278. On the other end of the spectrum, Greenland is the least densely populated territory in the world with 0.139 people per square kilometer. Pretty much your closest neighbor is every eight kilometers away. That's a pretty long way just to go ask to borrow some sugar. You look at it and the majority of our population lives within whatever, a hundred kilometers of basically the U S border. Yeah. And then everything else is just scattered. And we've got a pretty tiny, tiny population for being one of the largest land masses for a country. I think that freedom is kind of what's made Canada. One of those meccas of adventure as well is that there's yeah. just so much untouched and it's human nature. What's yeah. around the next corner? What's around that next bend? I've got to see it. I've got to get there. Absolutely. I love that feeling of driving on a new road, exploring somewhere new, and you see you come around the corner to just this amazing view. You're not finding it on Google or anything. Yeah. And yeah. it's beautiful. And that's, I mean, that's what held me at the lodge for so many years, because generally we like to bounce around every couple of years. It's just you find something new and you go check it out. But I spent six years exploring an area that I could still spend another 20 exploring and still find new things. Yeah. If you look at some of the technologies that you guys were using at the lodge. I'm sure that also helps you in terms of what you were able to do for your excursions too. Like I realize radios have been around since forever, but maybe that will date me a bit. But realistically, I never understood that when you took someone out on a whale watching tour, I was always like, how do they always find whales? You, I guess they have the radios and they're communicating between each other. And you were mentioning to me that now there's apps that you can use for wildlife spotting as well. Yeah, well, there's tons of different apps and they'll use it for wildlife or flora as well. you got different plant apps. Oh, that yeah. So if you're new into foraging and you're kind of getting into that for us, I mean, you're just touching on it, but the radios and having access to those people that going out and documenting these wildlife encounters every single day and then kind of building off their knowledge that they're posting, they're telling everybody about because it is a very tight knit community once you're out in that and you want every single person that's coming to your region to be able to experience it in a similar way and have that eye-opening experience. Yeah. And technology's been huge on that. I mean, like we touched on earlier, I don't go anywhere without that little handheld GPS when I'm going somewhere new. But then yeah. again, always you look at the other end, which is this technology and everything is making some people almost a little too comfortable with pushing out into these areas, take more and more unchecked risks because they feel that safety blankets there and Technology is giving this kind of false sense of security of, oh, I'm zero to 100. I've got my iPhone with Google Maps on it. I can never get lost yeah. until you get a cell service and then you don't have any kind of tracking. Yeah. And it, it, yeah, it creates this blanket. So it's, it's really a fine line of using that technology and using it to your advantage, but also just using your common sense, using what you've learned and what you've taught yourself or what you've picked up over the years and making sure you're not ever feeling too, too comfortable in what you're doing because that's where it's slipped. But 
technology. It's been huge in, in terms of allowing people to feel more comfortable, to access more things and just knowledge, 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 knowledge is the biggest. It's just being prepared. Also, the coolest thing is I never even really used Google Earth satellite views until this summer. You can 3D it and look at the mountain and plan your path and see exactly where the landscape shifts and gets steep and where it flattens out. It's insane. I can honestly say I get so stoked on Google Earth. At this point, I'm hooked and I want you to be too. So go open Google Earth, look up Mount Everest and then maybe the Eiffel Tower, the Grand Canyon. I'm sure that'll be enough to get the ball rolling. If you're on a computer, don't forget to hold the shift key when you're looking around to get a full 3D perspective. And that's huge. Like when I'm out on a trip and maybe you've got a confident, competent group that you can bring to some new areas, I'm flipping between the topographical Google Maps and Google Earth constantly yeah. looking at the landscape, looking at the terrain. And exactly like without that, you're kind of shot in the dark. You're going to get lost. You're going to clip yourself out. You're going to get into some sketchy situation. But these apps, these devices have basically made it kind of bomb proof that if you know how to use them, you still keep that little bit of risk assessment and awareness in the back of your mind. You can be so much safer in your approach for these new areas. Absolutely. Amazing. Have you ever gotten lost in the forest? Um, so I think as a guide, my answer needs to be no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is, that's um, fair. <laughs> I, guess, I would say I've been severely lost to the point where I'm like concerned and worried yeah. that I'm not going to be get out. Let's say I've been turned around where it takes me a little bit to figure out my exact location. My early, younger, more stupid, reckless days of exploring without those devices, that's what pushed me to make sure I had those fail safe. So that if I do get myself in a situation like that, you pull up your Garmin, you pull up your whatever, and it's set a waypoint to somewhere and it's going to tell you the best route to get there. So now we've spoke a little bit about the positive impacts of technology on the tourism industry. So I'd, I'd be curious to just ask the other side of that question, which would be, do you think there are any negative impacts? What are truly the root causes of any of those problems? I think the one major one that we're seeing with, well, let's call them the more easily accessible tourism destinations is complete oversaturation of tourists. You yeah. get there now and you're no longer going to this pristine beach. You're going to ruins that are now in ruins because 4 million people have been showing up a year instead of the allocated 100, 200,000 that should be getting there. You're not able to go to the Colosseum in Rome without seeing a thousand other yeah. people there in a minimum. And just the speed of what it's happening to, like you've seen all the viral posts of one area and then within a month, you can't stop seeing those posts from millions yeah. of other people. And it's just putting a huge strain on the infrastructure of these locations that were maybe not able to keep up with that demand and not able to make sure they're altering their service to be able to accommodate that bigger influx of tourists. So I think that's one of the main ones that we've seen throughout the industry and then it's that overconfidence and that overcomfortability. Even myself, after doing this for, I mean, my entire life, you're, you're getting too confident in places where you still need to have that sense of just knowing something could go wrong and yeah. what your options are going to be when it goes. Ah, snake! No, dude, that's a branch. Oh, ah, snake! No, that's the same branch again. Oh. Small things like you love to hike around with your earbuds that let in some of the outdoor noise. Yeah. that you can hear the birds while still listening to your podcast or listening to your music, whatever you want. And a lot of people will do the more extreme of that. And they're going to go out into these wilderness where you still need to have an alertness of your surroundings. And they're going to have 
noise canceling headphones on that completely take them out of that. And you don't know what you're stumbling upon. You don't know what you're getting close to. Yeah. And it's like, you, you got to utilize this amazing technology, but use it smartly. Don't Absolutely. rely on it. Don't depend on it. Um, but let it enhance what you're doing. Yeah. Just bringing it back to what you were saying before the oversaturation of tourists in certain locations. Do you think there's anything that could really be done to lessen or eliminate that issue? Yes and no. It's really, really exactly. It's really tough because you just can't can't control what people want to do, right? Like exactly. People are more and more free. They have this opportunity to access so much more information than ever before. And it's human tendency. You want to see that area. You want to be a part of what's these days. You want to be a part of it. So I think you've really got to monitor and make sure you have the infrastructure A, which is huge because if you can't put people in beds, then it's hard to give them that amazing experience, experience. they want. Yeah. Or if your roads are completely degraded or your beaches are covered in garbage. You need to make sure that whoever is taking care of these are on top of it. And it can't just be left to individual operators because that's just, it's a really hard balance to do for them. Obviously, you want the business, you want more people to come here, but you don't want to alter what you're doing. So a lot of the times it turns into a bit of greediness where they're just bringing people without thinking of those repercussions. So I think it does take that governing agencies, whether it be your municipal tourism board or the tourism board of Canada, whatever it may be, or wherever you're traveling to really monitor, to take notes on it and listen to the people on the ground and to try to limit as best as possible while obviously still bringing in profits, still bringing in recognition to those areas. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about the job market in terms of the tourism industry. And I'm curious how you think that technology has affected the job market and if you think it's making it shrink or expand. Yeah. So, I mean, short answer, technology is making the tourism industry explode. I think at least for my side, from what I'm watching, you are automating aspects of it, more specifically reservation systems. You're seeing a lot of these big companies that are going to full online booking thing. um, Which like people don't really want to be doing as their job anyways. Exactly. So it's, it's taking away some of those lower, more mundane jobs and it's replacing it though with people in the tech industry that maybe didn't think they were going to be a part of the tourism industry, but it got blended in because their backend design of a platform or their front end design of a website that's making it so incredibly appealing that people can't say no when they click on it. When I think about what you did in the um, the archery range this summer, which is a prime example of it. Yeah. Just to give everyone a little perspective, this past summer, I hosted a rave in the forest while working at the lodge. I got a bunch of speakers set up, generator going and did some visual projection into the trees. It was truly so much fun. Everyone had such a great time and we decided to do it in July, but branded as a Halloween party. So there was Yeah, a lot of really fun costumes and a lot of messages after asking why everyone was dressed in costumes, but... Happy Halloween! (laughs) You could have just done a show out there and had your music, but you enhance it with these visuals on the forest, which not only bring your set to life, but they bring the forest to life as well, right? Absolutely. incredible little intricacies in the um, tech industry that, like we've said time and time, it's it's enhancing everything that tourism already have, which is amazing. Yeah. And it's created an open this door for so many other people that already had their specialization in tech and they were already creating things for day-to-day life. And now they're creating these experiences that are enhancing everything we already have. And those jobs that are being created in parallel with technology 
Some of them are ones that you wouldn't even necessarily have thought would have been a job until it gets created. Even an example, if we're not looking at adventure guiding, but we're looking at someone who's hosting a music festival that's out in the forest, a lot of the people who know how to do lighting design would have thought that they would have maybe been in theaters and venues their whole life. And then suddenly they're in the wilderness with a generator and a bunch of speakers. Exactly. And I was talking to um, my partner's brother and his partner and they were out. I want to say it was in Vancouver somewhere. And they it was this forest walk and you walk through the forest and they had projectors up on trees that basically brought the trees to life. So you're walking through and these Ooh. trees are giving you information on just the different ecosystem you're walking through and yada, yada, yada. But they're quite literally bringing the forest to life through. Yeah projections and sounds and everything. After a little digging, I uncovered a night walk in Whistler called Valle Lumina. After looking at all the photos online, you can bet I added this spot to my list. With the help of lasers, lights, and visual projection, this place truly looks like you're walking through another world. There's something about vibrant lights under the night sky that just gets me. I've linked their page in the show notes so you can go check them out. Growing up, I would have never thought that this cedar tree I'm about to walk by is going to talk to me. And now it's yeah. talking to me. This is amazing. <laughs> talking to trees for real. <laughs> Look at hockey rinks now. And when they're showing these projections at the start of the game, you've got like whales or whatever your mascot jumping out in a 3D fashion on the ice. And it looks like you're watching a whale breach, but you're in the middle of an arena. Like it's, yeah. it's mind blowing what these people are coming up with and that are just enhancing the product so much more and adding so much value to it. It's yeah, it's yeah. amazing to watch. If you talk to someone 40 years ago who was going to a stadium to watch a hockey game and you try to explain to them that in 40 years they'd see a whale jumping out of the like they wouldn't understand what you're even saying. This brings me back to one of my favorite quotes written by Arthur C. Clarke in his 1962 book Profiles of the Future. Now, I haven't read the book, but I have heard this quote several times and he writes, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I think this quote holds up pretty well because I have to imagine how impossible it would be trying to explain visual projection to someone who's never even seen electricity. It then makes me think, with the exponential rate of advancements in technology, what are people 50 years from now going to be creating that stretches so far beyond our comprehension of what we think is possible today? I love thought experiments like this, and I think that's one of the reasons I started this show. If you like topics like this, I highly recommend you pick up a book called The Singularity is Near, When Humans Transcend Biology. The author, Ray Kurzweil, dives into so many topics on what the future will look like as we enter the age of intelligent machines. In the book, Ray talks about how the exponential growth of computing power will cause our non-biological intelligence to surpass our biological intelligence thousands of times over, and how we as humans might leverage this newfound power to tackle age-old problems and create some new ones along the way. At its core, this book has opened my eyes to so many new perspectives and ways of thinking. I haven't finished it yet, but I can sure say it's the most interesting book I've ever picked up. If you're curious to check it out, I've linked it in the show notes. Even as simple as you're going to be buying your ticket on this handheld computer, and then you're going to get their paperless, and you're going to show them a barcode that's going to scan yeah. and let them know who you are and where you purchased it from, and kind of just a little tangent, but the data collection on what type of tourist is coming out, what type of person is coming to visit, that's massive for all these governing bodies that look at all this information. You've got it all right at the touch of your fingers. You click one button on your computer, and it pulls up your entire demographic that you're looking to reach for, or maybe yeah. the 
it gets a little out of reach right now, but you want to alter your product to make it that much Be able more to hit that more appealing. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's giving us this whole new insight on how we're able to track, monitor and kind of alter what we're looking for demographic wise in the people. Uh, so what you're telling me is that someone really tailored their wine ads and that's why you're in wine country right now. And somehow it brought us to this location. Got exactly. you. <laughs> <laughs> so they knew that if they push that wine vineyard commercial enough on my Google ads that I'd see it enough time to say, ah, screw it, I'm going there. Going. <laughs> this one's good. What's it called again? White wine. So if you looked at the Canadian tourism today, how do you think it would look in the near or distant future with the help of technology? I realize that's a pretty open-ended question, but I'd love to hear like your vision of what you would love to see become a reality. I think the huge emphasis will be on exposure. So showing people these areas, which is going to bring more and more people to it. And then you see these sharing platforms like All Trails where you don't have to be a guide or anything. You go on this beautiful trail, it tracks it for you, you post it, and then people work off and keep adding to that kind of beta version of what you've posted. And you keep on building this bigger and bigger idea of what you're going to see and what you're going to do. I love All Trails. That is one of my favorite apps. It's so good. Like I go on to pour my heart out for All Trails, but I'll keep it short and sweet. It's truly one of my favorite apps. I'd have to put it in my list of top five favorite apps ever. It's a free community-based app, which allows you to search any location for hikes and trails. All the trails have community ratings, difficulty levels, and photos uploaded every few days from fellow hikers. So you can get an idea of what you're getting into before you get yourself into it. It's great for discovering top-rated hikes anywhere you go or beautiful walking paths right in your own city. Your dog is probably at home right now wondering where you are and when you're going to get home to take him for a walk. So maybe today's the day you guys both go out on a little adventure. Just don't forget the treats. The fact that we can all get so connected and that's like one app running on our phones. There are thousands of different apps. If you want to comb your cat, there's an app for that. There's so many ways we can get connected with whatever topic or thing that interests you. And so hiking is all trails. But if you were wanting to do fishing, I'm sure there's something similar for that. I checked. There's an app, of course. It's called Fishbrain, linked in the show notes. Get on that. Go catch a swordfish. In the interior here, you can find a ton of minerals and do some cool rock hunting around here. So just jump on cool. a Facebook like, hey, we just found this new location out here. And it's the sharing of knowledge, which is, I think, the beautiful thing that technology is bringing to everyone. I love this question I just had in my brain. How many Facebook groups are there? And I Googled it. It's 620 million groups, <laughs> ladies <laughs> <Yes>. and gentlemen. <laughs> like, that is insane. <laughs> I don't think you have any reason to not go make a friend online today. Who yeah, likes I don't care rocks. how niche your market is. I guarantee you with 600 million, you're finding your group on Yeah. <laughs> It's funny because when I was writing this question to ask you about what do you think the tourism industry will look like with the help of technology, you gave me a legitimate answer. And I was just thinking like jetpacks to hover over <laughs> Kenya. Well, still, and that's like, that's not impossible. And you think of it, we have these mini jetpacks right now that are yeah. in the shape of drones that oh, are true. taking videos. I, just, I was watching a uh, fishing show the other day, Deadliest Catch. They're out fishing and they can't find the fish. So what do they do? 
you send up a drone and you find the bait ball that finds the bigger fish around there. So it's oh, wow. a crazy blend of old school fishing techniques with new school locating techniques that put them on these locations that they're able to find that they wouldn't have been able to. And drones are what, like, let's realistically say no more than 10 years they've been available to the public. Yeah. You come that far and now it's a Nalgene sized device that unfolds and has 10 hour lifespan and you can record and ultra In full high HD. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool to see how technology that can be made for one specific market can be repurposed in another market and completely change that market. Drones is an example, but even augmented reality. To give everyone a brief explanation of like what augmented reality is, it's a device that you could use like a pair of glasses. And if we were both wearing those glasses, I could point at a tree to you, be like, hey, look at that tree. And then on your glasses, it would make the tree light up. When I saw that in your notes, I kind of likened it to the next generation of, I'm sure most people have gone to a museum where you get this little tiny handset yeah. or a little audio thing that you put on your ears, you get to station one, you hit play, and it tells you all about this. This yeah. is taking the next step where it's just completely integrated in what you already have. Let's take the lodge for an example. I look up into the mountains right on a little note. That's Ursus Mountain that's 4,700 feet tall, yada, yada, yada. And it gives you kind of a more in-depth look at that and it projects on your eyes there or with a bigger projector onto a bigger scale. Yeah. Um, but it shows you what life might have been 100, 200, that's 300 years ago. such a good idea. And I think like we were talking earlier, that flyover Canada, yeah. but now it's going to become, something, I'm sure, like enhanced Canada where you're going on these signature trips and you're getting this added information as you go through it, which totally. maybe a give you in the past, but a lot of people are kind of pushing towards that solidarity and wanting to do it on their own, their self-guided experiences. So you're yeah. going to be able to provide that. Hey, you don't want to go out with a guide for the day. Perfect. Rent these glasses for 20 bucks, go out there and you're going to get all that same information, but at the pace that you want to get. Absolutely. It and then with like just the intimacy of the one partner that you wanted to go out there with rather than a group. And that's exactly it. And something like you, you touched on it earlier. It's that that change in mentality too, because everybody thinks so incredibly different and has so many different ideas. And sometimes it takes that outsider from the tech industry that says, Hey, I've done this and this in show business or in like a theater or in the movies or at an events area. And like, why, why aren't we putting this outdoors or why aren't yeah. we doing it in this area? Which is something that in a thousand years, I wouldn't have thought of a tree getting a projection on it. And now it's just becoming standard in areas. So it, yeah. it it takes that combination of different ways of thinking that create this incredible thing for so many more different people that are going to come visit it. Amen. So getting up and making a big career shift can be pretty daunting and scary. Do you have any advice or tips for people who have been inspired and want to pursue a job working as an adventure guide or just in the tourism industry in general? Absolutely. And I mean, short answer of it go for it. It's accessible. It's there. And it's a very viable way of life. And it's an incredible way of life. It's got its ups and downs. And like you said, we just switched out from a job where we became incredibly comfortable, incredibly good at what we were doing. And then we leave and then we're back at the bottom of the totem. So it's not an easy thing. It takes strong people and people do it all the yeah. time. But to move away from your comfort zone and to get out of it just a little bit, hardest thing is just taking that initial leap. And then once you're out there, don't be shy. Go out yeah. there. Don't be embarrassed who you are. Don't change who you are. Just be yourself through and through. Be yourself. Be yourself. Be yourself. Be yourself.
myself. And people love that. People are attracted to that kind of person. And that'll bring you exactly what you're looking for once you make that big move. Don't you think Phil would make a great motivational speaker? Yeah, me too. Okay, now on to listener questions submitted by you. Okay, so I have a couple questions from listeners from Megan Eve, who says, what's your dog's name? And does he or she ever come on adventures with you? <laughs> so that's our little girl, Maui. She is the sweetest resort dog you'll ever meet. She wants nothing but love, <laughs> as I'm sure Liam saw this yeah, summer. She, she rolls is, over whenever is, you walk up to her. Yeah, exactly. And absolutely, she was a huge part of me figuring out all the trails, all the ins and outs of the lodge, bringing her out with me on every single hike I did. For me in my industry, it's a big added comfort because dogs, animals, they all have this extra sense that they can detect wildlife before you can. I'm sure you saw it tons of times. I would get scalded and get put in the, I mean, let's use it, the dog house if I didn't bring that dog. If I went paddle boarding and I didn't put her on the front of my board, she was pissed. Yeah. <laughs> so we had to get her little life jacket and uh, she'd come out on every single paddle board trip that was going out. That's awesome. She's a great companion. And if you're wanting to check out a photo of Maui, just look at the little fluffer on the cover art of this episode. That's her. Fellow adventure guide, Justin Sabs, really wants to know, what is a jabroni? Uh, how long have you used the term and where do you think it derives from? Oh, classic. So where it derives, that I don't know. I know. I have a feeling we actually started using it together. And uh, kind of when you got a schmuck of a guest, they're, they're a, a little bit of not the greatest guest you want. They're maybe a little cocky in their abilities while downplaying you or kind of thinking you're kind of a lower level of a human than they are. And it's sad. That, that guest was a jabroni today. That's like they're, so they're great. Work, really and I mean, every sector has it. We used to have it back when I was rafting and it was a Gorby. And that was basically describing the most incompetent person you could possibly <laughs> Yeah, that person was kind of less than ideal today. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Okay, so before we finish, I always ask my guests a few rapid fire questions. Um, I'll ask you in a second about what you like the most, but I also want to know, what do you like least about being an adventure guide? Like what's something that needs widespread change or it could just be something tiny and funny. If you pick and choose where you work, you obviously want to follow where you love to be and where you're super passionate about. But at least in my decade of being a guide, a lot of the places I've worked have also been my home. So mm -hmm. you're on site there and you're there for anywhere from six to eight months. And you're not only working with all these people, but you're living with them too. So it's, it's a really hard separation sometimes. And you don't want to be around the dinner table constantly talking about your work, but it's right there and you're living in the area. So how do you not talk about it? And it's this really fine balance of being able to disassociate the work from your life when you're out there and being able to balance and make sure you have that healthy balance. But then of course, a major emergency, you got to get called in for, you got to jump on that and be there. But yeah. then ensure that you have your own life outside of that, whether it be like going out on your own kind of wellness hikes and going out on your own just to clear your mind. Or for me, it was going out and doing a little fishing trip. So yeah, making sure you have that nice work-life balance. That's the hardest thing in at least the adventure remote living that I've found that I've had to deal with over the past decade. Yeah. You only have so much bandwidth 
to give energy towards certain things every day. If you're not using enough points of your own energy for yourself, you're going to burn out and then you're just no use to anyone. That's exactly it. Yeah. So yeah, just, just making sure you've always got a healthy, happy mindset and you're able to keep going back after your timeout and for sure delivering exactly what you have to do. That's for. huge. So what do you love most about being an adventure guide? Like what's that rewarding feeling that reminds you why you chose to pursue this work? It's a great question. And I love to answer it because it, it has greatly changed in my 12 year career as a guide. Initially, it was, I can't believe I'm getting paid to go do what people are paying. Yeah. I'm in <laughs> many places in the world and some person up above me is willing to sign a check for me to go out and have these amazing experiences every day. (laughs) But as I kind of got used to that factor, um, it really was a full switch and realizing that I'm not that Red Bull athlete that's gonna go ice climb a mountain or do these crazy stunts, but rather being that stepping stone into allowing people to expand their bandwidth for outdoor activities, expand their Mm -hmm. knowledge base, It's so amazing to feel that like I've been able to give them some new piece of information or some new puzzle piece that's really creating this whole picture for them. And that, that to me is the most rewarding thing of the guiding industry for myself. Yeah. You're hooked now. So if you could work for any company or start your own business in the world right now, where would you work and what would you be doing? So that's great because I do have a couple ideas of what we're hoping to do in the near to further down the road future. Short term, I'm looking to jump on. I mean, I'd love to work with Destination Canada and be able to do something like that where you're a bit of a larger factor in the decision making on how you want to operate tourism, not just on a smaller scale of your company that you've worked with, like I've been able to do at Blackout Wilderness Lodge for the past six years, but more on a full scale of your country and what you're going to be able to deliver. So something like that would be ideal. And then as a little ways down the road, I'd love to have my own small scaled resort business that either has one location or multiple locations, depending on the growth of it, like we did at the lodge, but a little smaller scale and a little more emphasis on like the direct farm to table. So getting everything mm-hmm. you want in the lodge right in that immediate local focus and being able to provide those life-changing things that I continue to definitely strive for. And if I can do it under my own umbrella where it's me making the decisions and that's ideally what i'd like to do long term. yeah so last question for you what's the most valuable fact lesson or piece of advice that you want to leave for our listeners that you've learned from doing what you do every single person has something to give don't ever think because i'm Mm -hmm. bringing out a newbie in the outdoors or because i'm learning how to program a light show. Don't ever think somebody doesn't have value in their life or doesn't have something to give you. Um, And I think that's kind of what's hooked me again into the tourism industry is just humans as a race are such an incredibly interesting species and just getting to know how everybody thinks, what everybody thinks, as meaningless of a topic as you might think, everybody's got a light to shine. So be inquisitive with people. Try to see, and I mean, you saw me at the lodge, right? try to make a point every single day. You talk to somebody, you say hi to everybody because who knows that day somebody might share a wealth of knowledge that you would have never in your lifetime thought about. And it's just from an easy touching base, saying hi, checking in and talking to people and just having open conversations with people, I think is the most valuable thing you can do in any sector of life right now. Network and keep your interest in people because you're going to be surrounded by seven plus billion of them your entire life. That's why I like this podcast because you've shared with me a wealth of knowledge today. 
Yeah, totally. And I mean, like I've been listening through your other ones, you you learn so much from people that you might not have that opportunity to talk to again. So picking yeah. their brains and whenever you can out of them is just such an amazing way to go about life. And you end up with such a huge knowledge base that you're comfortable in so many different situations. And it's it's huge. Phil, this has been great. Yeah, Liam, that was Thank awesome. You. Buddy. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'll jump on a call in a couple of years or whatever we need. We'll we'll do another one for yeah, sure. Yeah, I'd love that. Um, okay, so I know you said you're not really the social media plugs, but um, <laughs> where would be the place that they could find you? I I would say the most uh, likely one for me to check, and I honestly like laughing about this because I do have to go check in my handle on it because I don't actually know. <laughs> no, <laughs> is, is it Instagram? <laughs> Yeah, it's on Instagram. So yeah, my Instagram is just Malte Phil. So that's M-A-L-T-A-I-S. <laughs> and I'll and link it. I'll link it in the show notes too. I think so. my last post was probably about a year ago. So, okay. <laughs> but yeah, if anybody has any questions about it, the tourism industry, getting into guiding or anything at all, you're in the region and you want to go for a little hike or a little anything, yeah, feel free to hit me on Instagram, reach out and uh, always love meeting new people, always love talking to new people. So please don't be a stranger. Awesome. Amazing. Thank you, Phil. No worries, Liam. Anytime, buddy. You have a wicked end of your day and uh, we'll keep talking. I'm looking forward to listening to this soon. So thank you, everyone, for joining us on the show today, where curious minds explore how technology is shaping the future of our modern Earth. If you enjoyed today's show, leave us a review, drop us a rating, share it with a friend, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also support the show by joining my Patreon for as little as $2 a month at patreon.com slash modern earth. The support may only cost two bucks, but it's truly worth millions to me. My heart is cheap, folks. Since this is an indie podcast, I'm open to community feedback. If you really enjoyed saying about the show, or you have a suggestion for a topic you'd like me to cover, drop me a line. I'll try and make it happen. Links to all the products, articles, and websites we spoke about on the show today can be found in the show notes. I'd also like to thank Rye P. Beats for designing the show's theme music. You can check him out on Spotify or SoundCloud to find some of his latest work. And most importantly, I'd like to thank you for listening. Now, after the credits, you know I like to tell you guys something about myself. This week, I thought I'd share some news that I'm moving to Australia. After a long-awaited limbo, I'm finally going to study with other PhD students in a lab. There's students there who study robotics, human-robot interaction, augmented reality, virtual reality, control systems, the works. Bunch of nerds, just like myself. I truly cannot wait to meet them. I think this will be a great place to discover some amazing new guests for the show, so stay tuned for that. Again, I'm your host, Liam Roy, and I'll be back to interview a new guest, next time on Modern Earth. Every summer, thousands of pleasure-seeking tourists head for the great outdoor playgrounds of America. And the favorite spot is this wonderland of nature called Jellystone National Park.